Welcome back to the Game Dev Show. My name is Luke Greenaway, and this week I am joined by master artist of games including Max Payne, Manhunt, and The Witness, to visionary director of 12 Minutes, Luis Antonio. Luis, how are you doing? Hey, Luke, I'm pretty good. That was a pretty hardcore intro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. I mean, it was easy. It was easy. I just literally looked at your uh, your profile and all the work you've been doing, and I was like, great. Like, let's just pick out a couple of bits here. But how's things, man? Good. Pretty good. Just been relaxing uh, now that all the buzz and the the, the release stress and, and polishing and bug fixings are have passed. Mm. And just thinking about the future, what to do next, and taking some vacations. Yeah, yeah. I bet. I bet. Have you got anywhere planned? Anywhere? Any holidays planned yet? Kind of, but with, with the pandemic, you know, we're just kind of waiting to see when things chill a bit so we can travel more. Um, mm. Mostly being with the family and, and not crunching like crazy in the evenings. Just yeah. Not stressing it's, out. Yeah. Yeah, it's important, isn't it? I read a lot, especially in the games industry, but in all industries at the moment, there's a lot of people focusing on like work-life balance, trying to get that life part of that balance back and focusing on enjoying life a bit more i think obviously the pandemic has really heightened people's awareness of i think like the fragility of life and yeah man i think it's it's very very important yeah yeah, i agree i mean i've been working from home for like five years so when the pandemic hit it didn't really change the routine we're pretty fortunate that um it doesn't change the what i was doing i I just stayed home more yeah the game the games industry is just like involved right it's just almost reacted but a lot like you said a lot of people were actually doing it before um the pandemic hit before everyone had to isolate and it's interesting to see how well the games industry has kind of coped with that and how particularly some really big publishers like uh, in particular like japanese publishers i think who are very used to working in studio and how even they've adapted to actually like a work from home model and a remote model and speaking to some developers like yeah like you can see that they've had to actually you know they might be working with like four or five different studios across the globe to bring one game together and i think it's it's been quite hard for some producers especially i mean yeah managing all that must be i I mean there's there's the practical side like i saw a lot of of friends like when you're doing like mocap and Mm. things that are physical and need presence they became really tricky to do artists or, or or just developers that require the discipline of being in a studio is what forces them to be, you know, if you're in your pajamas at home, you're gonna be on YouTube and then you while yeah. the office allows you to have this freedom. And yeah. I, I know a lot of friends who just it's incredibly hard for them to to stay productive from home. Yeah. But you're right. Then you're more with your family and less commute too. I think there's you can see like a distinct difference as well between games that are made without crunch where crunch is always going to be a thing, but like where crunch hasn't been at the forefront of the last three months of development. Like I think indie, there's a lot more natural love there because indie developers, they have like a concept and like an idea and then they run with that and they they, they stay true to that idea and that concept. Whereas I think the greater the scale of the project, the more people are involved, the more expectation there is, the higher the budget. Like you seem to see that that love becomes almost like distilled a little bit. I think you can say diluted because people yeah, start focusing on time. I think you're right. I mean, I think the culture is very important. Like when I was working at Rockstar Games, we, we crunched a lot. Like mm. I crunched for 11 months on Manhunt 2, which was Jeez. insane. And I was living in UK and I had to sign something saying I would not sue them for crunching so much. <laughs> Jeez, uh, man. But wow. there was a lot of passion. Like we were extremely mm. passionate. And I think the game had a lot of, 
love into it. So I think it's studio culture. And I don't know, like I imagine like people who work on FIFA, you know, mm. every year churning out the football game, updating the stadiums, the uniforms. <laughs> you have to have a real passion for the franchise and football to do it yeah. year in, year out. Talking about passion, right? And like talking about yourself, you actually studied design at uni, the University of Lisbon. What was this like? Because has passion for games, has that always been something you've been interested in and that's what led you to take in design at university? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I was studying, there was no game design degrees. There was none of that. There was no thoughts about that at all. Like even the game industry in Portugal was non-existent. There were some people doing mobile stuff, but there were no degrees on, on those areas. I, I was crazy about games. I think like my father was a programmer. So when I was very young age, we had a computers at home. So I was on MS-DOS trying to, you know, to run Prince of Persia and Day of the Tentacle and, and trying oh, to, to navigate. We never had consoles. So I, I think because we had a PC and not consoles, I got this. I remember going on paint, you know, and, and getting screenshots of Dragon Ball and then trying to change the color of the hair of the characters. Or there was this desire, I think, from a young age to, to mess up with data from games because, you know, when you're trying to run a game on DOS, you're... Even trying to find the right folder, you would stumble on on a folder that has images or has or has sound files. And I'm like, oh, what if I change a sound file? And I think that stayed. And then in university, I knew I wanted to do art, but I had no idea how I would, you know, make a living out of it. And mm -hmm. my parents wanted to be an architect, but architecture looked really boring. You know, it was like 90% of my friends who, who were architects were, you know, you're doing what are you you're doing like toilet seats or or door handles like the pleasure of designing a building is very rare and the communication design seemed seemed that i would learn some things that would allow me to to go into games or film or visual effects or something along entertainment but i didn't learn anything there i learned how to think and how to problem solve but in terms of there was no 3d there was no the teachers barely knew photoshop or um, game engines they had no idea how to use those or anything so it was all pretty much self-thought on the mm. side, which I think it's a, it's something in the industry that's very common, you know. The, now we have a lot of degrees. At the yeah. time, you just have to learn by yourself. It's, it's so true. We hear, like, we've had a lot of guests on who have, like, a similar journey at the beginning. They'll take, like, computer science, like, back then, but it was very different to what it can be now and how, like you said, there's these video game courses and degrees and development, and you even have, like, academies set up specifically for video game design. What was your family like? What was their reaction like when you were like, well, this is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to get into. They were super supportive. Early on, I wanted to be an illustrator for many years. And halfway through university, I realized that by the end of university, I needed a portfolio. So I started to work towards having an illustration portfolio. And I started to get some gigs for newspapers and, and magazines as an illustrator semi-regularly which is pretty funny. Um, the, the newspaper illustrations are, I don't know if you know this, but they are, um, you're drawing the things that cannot be photographed, you know, like let's say mm. a pedophile ring somewhere in Portugal and they don't have photos. You'd get these commissions at, you know, like at midnight to get something for 6 a.m. about a bank robbery or a guy who stabbed his, his wife and ran away and you have to draw the what happened Jeez. but i started to make enough money to um to realize i could make a living out of this so mm. my parents just to go back yeah my parents were just you have this skill set go ahead and try to do this thing we don't quite know where it's gonna go but it mm. seems you'll survive anyway so they were they were cool the hardest for them was leaving the country 
as soon as I finished university, I, I I moved to London to work in games, and yeah. that was confusing at the time. You know that it was like, well, you know, the idea of moving abroad was was pretty. Yeah, but that that first role that was that was quite a big one because that was a rock star. Is that right? Your first role in the industry? Yeah, that was pretty funny. I, <laughs> I, I first I tried to apply. I don't think I ever mentioned this. I I really wanted to work in film, so I started to apply to, to VFX companies. All in London, there's like in Seoul, like there's a ton of them there. But I realized slowly that the work in VFX, you're you end up being very focused on something. You know, you're going to be doing like if you're working on King Kong, you're going to be doing maybe fur for two years or or metal textures. Mm. While games, there it's much more broad in terms of each project. You do a ton of things. So I slowly started to look for work in games, but no one was really hiring for juniors. But Rockstar in London, they had opened a studio. They were looking for art directors. So I applied for art director, and uh, yeah, and they replied. They said, "Look, you have zero experience, <laughs> but you're going to be open for juniors in in a few months. So uh, and you look like a junior candidate." And that was mm. it. So I flew there, and that's really cool. You worked on um, you worked on Manhunt too while you were there, didn't you? And I, re- I actually read somewhere on Manhunt too that you were a you were a porn actor. <laughs> <laughs> I what? was. Can you um, tell us about this? <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. Um, I became good friends with a sound designer, and he was mixing all the sounds. And there's a level, there's like a, there's a porn theater. I, I was doing art for the game, right? My role, I did like, I don't know, like five, six levels, maybe 30 characters. Um, uh, and the sound designer, there's a level which is in a theater, like a, like a porn theater. And there's a movie playing in the background. And he, my accent at the time was very, he had a strong I, I think still has a little bit. Not maybe it's more French, but my 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 English accent had a very strong Portuguese mm. accent on top, and he found it really funny. So he's like, "Dude, let's go to the booth and record you doing some 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 naughty, you know, you know, porn <laughs> lines." And that's it. We did like a two-hour session, which was hilarious, and it ended up in the game, and I ended up credited as a. So I could choose my 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 porn actor name, and uh, <laughs> and now I'm. I, I think it's stallion or black stallion or something. <laughs> I'm still on IMDb, uh, credited uh, as a, as an actor. Yeah, it's a porn. I think it says there. Let me look. Actor. Yeah, Louis Stallion Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, that's really. I love that. I love that you just rolled with it as well. You're like, yeah, porn actor. Yeah, I can do it. I can do anything. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, it was it was super fun. Like, I think it opened up. I don't know if you know, but most Rockstar studios, they um, they acquire existing studios. Like the Midtown Madness guys, I don't know if you know the Microsoft game, mm. they're the ones who became the Midnight Club studio. Mm. Um, so Rockstar would look for a very strong studio and would convert them into Rockstar. But the London studio was a brand new. They, they get people from all over the world. It was the first studio they had created. It didn't exist before. So the team, we were all very tight. Uh, we were all new in there. We were all getting to know each other. And there was a lot of overlap in, you know, the artists would would jump into the designer, seeing what they're up to, the, the sound designer, right? Everyone would, the animators, we would just goof around a lot, uh, mm-hmm. which I think allowed for a lot of overlap between, you know, versus a student that's already very defined. Yeah. They were more open to more ideas. Like it was a bit more like horizontal in terms of the, the approach to development and like artistic input. I think a little bit like like I remember very when we we're doing the animations for Manhunt 2, the lead animator uh, CJ, he wanted to record new animations, and he was so talented that he came up with a mocap studio in the office. This was ages ago. He, he set up a corner for mocap, and then he plugged in right the, the, the mocap studio straight to the game engine, and then right we were all goofing around doing 
you know, kill animations because you could, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you'd go into the spaces like, okay, and, and I know you should know Manhunt. It was, right, you have to kill a guy with, I don't know, with a, a baseball bat 30 different ways. And after a while, it just gets like, what can we come up with? <laughs> and he would be next to you jumping and, and sometimes, hey, come here, guys, let's just try some crazy stuff. So there was a lot of that, I think. Did you did you enjoy it at Rockstar? Like, how was it? I mean, you mentioned like crunch earlier, but how was your overall experience? Because it's your first round in the games industry, and I guess like you would have learned a lot throughout that period. Yeah, at the start, my biggest shock was the amount of talent each person needs to have, the amount of skills, right? Like, as an artist, you're doing textures in Photoshop, you're modeling in Studio Max, you're importing things to the game engine, you're trying to figure out all these technical things you know from uh, you know like at the time for example we were without being too technical we were there was no no lighting in the engine so we were baking mm. vertex colors in geometry using mental ray in studio max and then baking them in geometry so it would look like the lighting was in the engine and and you're coming up with these solutions with like there's an artist there's a technical artist and there's the programmer writing the code trying to match i was overwhelmed by the complexity of doing a game mm. uh, well as a designer which was I was studying, you know, maybe you're doing a label for a yogurt <laughs> and what you're doing, you're in Photoshop, choosing where the yogurt goes, where the colors are, and then it goes and it's printed in a paper. So there was this fascination for the complexity, which makes me understand crunch in a way, because there's so many variables you cannot control and, mm. and you come up with things. And then when you're playing them, you realize we need like six more months and we only plan two months. The crunch yeah. was, was, was hard, but it was a lot of lessons there. I realized how important it is to have a personal life <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and how to stand up. Because a lot of people in the industry, they would accept the crunch because, you know, so many people wanted to work in games. You just get fired and there's an army of people who will happily replace you. But if you think about it, crunch means the producer is not good at his job right? He didn't schedule properly. Depends on the crunch. If it's a one month crunch, like on The Witness, we crunched because we, we got a slot at PSX, the event, to show the game on the stage. And we're like, yeah, man, we can have a demo and you can have a trailer. We literally like, we figure out the camera path and we worked mm -hmm. on the art just for the camera. And that was like an intense month to make it look good for the first reveal trailer, which makes sense. Like everyone was really passionate because yeah. it will boost the game and the sales. But at Rockstar, it was more of um, the producer did not know how to manage a schedule. And instead of protecting his team, he'd rather protect, you know, the stockholders or whoever mm. is, is paying his salary by making everyone below him work like crazy. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, we, we stood up to it. Like after, the, after Manhunt 2, which is where we crunched, the old studio said, look, you make us crunch again, we all leave. Mm. And we didn't crunch again at that studio. That's brilliant. It's yeah. tough to do that though. Like you gotta have some serious courage, right? Because it, it does feel like with the games industry, even now, this is still applicable. There is so many people want to work in it. You speak to like people at all different levels, but there can be this feeling of imposter syndrome sometimes, you know, especially when you're working. I know and this is applicable to all industries and all loads of different roles, but within the games industry, it does feel like oh God, if you're working on a great project and you're working at a big publisher. There is a concern that am I ever going to be able to do that again? And I think it takes yeah. a lot of courage to stand up to that. I agree. And I mean, this was like, I think after eight, nine months of crunching, like I, I lost my girlfriend. Um, wow. She was like, you're never home. <laughs> I, I got pale, you know, I lost a lot of weight. There were clear signs of, wait a second, no matter, this is just wrong. And because you had no weekends, right? We would work nine to 11 or something every day for, for like 10 months. Um, wow. 
you, you could see that you're you're shifting as a person into mm. what life is because you don't see friends, you don't go out, and you, you're not productive either. Like you start to question the crunch because you you just are not productive. Your 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 brain stops. You cannot right. So so the questions raise of even if I want to be a team player and mm. I really want to get this game gun and I love the studio, I think we're not doing the best way to arrive at that conclusion. Right? You you start to realize that. Okay, I understand you want to get the game done, but you're just doing it incorrectly. There's other ways to do this. That's right. Did that lead? Because you obviously you left Rockstar and you went on to Ubi, Ubisoft. Was Crunch like part of the reason for leaving? Like, tell us about that move. No, no, Crunch was not like so. We Crunch on Manhunt too, and like I said, we after that the whole studio we we're like we're not doing this anymore, and we we're also more because we were so tight. We were really like to the producer, like we we would question his decisions like on on the next project was midnight club la for the playstation portable and we had a year left for the game and then he would come back from meeting with sam and dan hauser you know in, in new york and he would tell us um look we're going to do paris we're going to add paris to the game and we were definitely we had these all meeting studio meetings and we were like dude we don't have time to put paris in the game so we're not putting Paris in the game. <laughs> yeah. Like, ah, like we're not doing. We all right. The programmers would say we don't have time to do this. The artists would say it's taking us X amount of time, and we would cut features. Yeah, we would monitor ourselves. So, so crunching mm -hmm. kind of disappeared, and we we felt empowered. Like the reason for moving was I just wanted to try another studio. Like I could see myself staying at Rockstar for ten years, but I was like, how does it work in other studios? How it is other cultures? And I loved traveling, so. It was in Canada, where I'm now. It was in Quebec. It was a lead position, which I had never been a lead before. Mm. And it was a different project. And I wanted to see how Ubisoft was to work for. Mm. Uh, and Ubisoft... In... <laughs> so Ubisoft <laughs> pays overtime. Okay. You... That's a good yeah, start. They would pay, I think, salary and a half or something like that. And after a while, they would start giving vacation days if they, mm. if they ran out of budget for overtime. And what would that do would be uh, like, I think like the second project I worked on, we, we did like three months over time and we were loving it. We were like, yeah, because we, we would have like six months vacations after this. But what happened was right because the studio is accountable, the heads of the studio would go to the producer and say, look, you're burning through the whole budget because we're paying all these people for overtime. Mm. This is not feasible. Uh, we'll run out of money without the game being done. So that would put the fire under the producer to try to cut features or, or manage the project better, which was great. But Canada is a different culture. If it was like, let's say at five, you stop working. If you're in the office at 5.30, which I would be, I had this rockstar mentality and I was a leader. So I would stay an hour or two after the time was up and people would come to me to be like, do you have problems at home? <laughs> like, Why don't you go enjoy the rest of your day? Oh, um, but the games, I mean, I think it's different. Like at, in Quebec, especially, it was more of a job. It was their nine to five job mm -hmm. versus this crazy, passionate, let's try to break boundaries and make revolutionary games. They were more um, come to the work, do their thing. Like, and I remember I would push a lot the junior artists to come out of their comfort zone. There was a project mm -hmm. we were working on and, and there was an environment artist and she had to, to design a soundstage. Like it was like a, a talk show or something. She had to design the stage. And we didn't have a concept artist. And I was like, look, why don't you try to concept some stuff? And she felt super out of her comfort zone, but because she was used to just, you know, getting a concept piece and then model it. And I realized, yeah, that was a big lesson that some people, they don't like to, to be challenged. They're good at something and they want to stay at it. But I like the lot more the challenge of 
getting off my boundaries. And that's why I ended up leaving Ubisoft. I saw that you obviously you were lead and then you were an art director for four months before moving, <laughs> before moving on. Like why that's a, that's a short period of time, obviously. And there was there any particular reason? Cause it uh, sounds like you got the role you wanted way yeah, back when you were a rockstar. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. So as a lead artist, Right, I started to take more and more art director uh, roles. Like for people who don't know, like a lead artist, you'll manage the the artists based on the art direction, right? So if you have a certain mm. art style to follow or something, you will be figuring out the pipeline, figuring out the technical challenge with the technical artist. And as an art director, you're in charge of the whole thing. But what that meant was that I was in direct meetings with friends and the heads deciding what the next projects would be and the direction of the project we were doing. So I could really see the thought process of the studio, which was um, which was ridiculous. It was all based in making money <laughs> to uh, the point that uh, we, I remember we were doing a game for Kinect long before Kinect was out, right? And we had some amazing programmers who were solving really complex things like, uh, I don't know if you remember, the Kinect had an issue where if, if you rotated, it wouldn't know if a leg was forward or backward, right? Mm-hmm. Kinect would expect the body. I know if you, you know what? Connect is right. Yeah, for I that. remember Connect. Yeah, like it could yeah. read your it body was... and your body motion. Doomed. Yeah, and we were doing some really cool stuff. But then the higher ups would be like, "Look, this game just came out for Wii, and it sold a lot. So I want you guys to stop the Connect development, but you're gonna use the same assets you created to make a Wii game that's gonna be just like this one, so it makes more money." And you're like, "Wait, what about now?" Nah. So they would. There are a lot of these decisions in big studios, mm. and, and, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm never yeah. going to do anything that's, you know, creatively. Um, but I understand that I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I, I think if you have a studio of like 300 people or a thousand people, you have to feed these people, you have to plan ahead, and I imagine it's hard to move. Right, it's like a dinosaur; it takes time to turn. And and Ubisoft did it. In Montpellier, they opened, you know, from dust. Eric Shai, they, they made a lot of effort to get indie ideas and, and more creative mm. going uh, but at the time it was pretty stuck and i i just wanted to do something else yeah because you, you when you left there and obviously you went to an indie studio which was thecla, thecla? yeah, oh yeah wow you did your research yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you Not were there you were there for four years right and you worked on the witness, the witness um and this is a huge shift from ubi and rockstar because it's a much 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 smaller team so I, I understand, obviously, the rationale to, to move into a smaller team, to obviously be making, working on games for the sake of games rather than money. And, you know, it's more agile. There's that agility. There's there's probably the heart and the passion is there at big studios, but I think at smaller studios, it's less about logistics and more about creativity, you could say. You nailed it, exactly, yeah. What are the unique challenges, though, of like shifting from a big AAA publisher to essentially in India as an artist? So the motivators, you you, you got it. Uh, it was totally that. Uh, at Ubisoft, I would have, first, there's a ton of meetings. And half the meetings would be about the engine is broken or or this asset is not exporting correctly, right? Versus gameplay and design and, and actual mm-hmm. game things you're trying to solve. Originally, I was not going to work on The Witness. The plan was to work on Spy Party with Chris Hacker. I don't know if you know that game. I had been following Innis for, for a few years, even before Ubisoft, and, and he was working on this game called Spy Party, which is, I was fascinated by this game. It's a game where one player is a spy and the other player wants to kill the spy. So one player is in a party and he has to, you know, like steal a microfilm, put drugs on a drink or something. And then the mm. other one is outside looking at this party of 10, 15 people and he has to figure out 
which one of these characters is not an NPC, but it's someone pretending to be an NPC. And that sounds wicked. It's really cool. Uh, That's so cool. And it's very hardcore, uh, like poker style, right? You're, there's one player pretending to be an NPC and behaving like an NPC, and there's another one analyzing every single player to see which one is the fake one. And you have like 10 minutes. It's a pretty cool game. But the art was non-existent. So I was a bit bored at Ubisoft, so I started to do characters for him in ZBrush. Like, and I was sending him these characters, like, hey, look, you don't know me, I like your game. I was imagining your characters could look like this. And so we started to chat back and forth. And he started, you know, like telling, oh yeah, one character should look like this and like that. And so we started to kind of work together a little bit until eventually I told him, look, I'm leaving Ubisoft. I'm tired of being here. If you want to work with me, now it's the time. And he said, look, I'm not ready yet. I'm still doing a lot of programming stuff. But my friend, Jonathan Blow, is about to finish The Witness and he needs someone to just wrap up. Like, so we could work for him for six months and then you come work on Spy Party. So I flew to California to work for a few months on The Witness. But once I sat down to play The Witness and work on it, I started to question a lot of the art, you know, like, and if you've seen the old screenshots of the game, they were a bit all over the place. I had this very critical eye of, you know, how is the world supposed to look like? How, how, how are things supposed to look like? So we started to go down this rabbit hole of how is the game really supposed to look like? And Jonathan had a very clear direction in terms of being a game with no noise. He never figured out what no noise means visually. Like he was able to identify when it's not working, mm-hmm. but how to fix it, we didn't quite know. So the art team, we just sat down and we start this process. And yeah, it took three years to finish the game. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I never worked on Spy Party. Uh, <laughs> that was That's it. great. Um, and in terms of working with, with Jonathan, the main difference was the, is what you said. It was all about, first, there were no schedules. There were no, there's no roles. There's nothing. It's just you're there and you use your skill set to make this project be done. So like I did the trailers, I did the website for the game, and then the art, right? We were three artists working on the island. We were just figuring out how to get things done, which was mm. was amazing, you know? It was, and, and Jonathan was not afraid to, to do drastic changes in order to like we had the island all complete and one day he was like guys i think it's taking too long to walk between locations uh, we need to shrink the island and we're like what shrinking the island <laughs> we're gonna have to cut stuff glue things it's gonna be months and he's like but don't you think the game will be better and you're like yeah 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 then why would you not uh, do this that's brilliant it's amazing so it was like yeah we, it was it's done when it's done and, mm. But the choices are all towers making an amazing experience. Mm. And that was amazing. It was every question you make, you know, where I put a tree, how color, what color do I choose, was all towers. Does this serve the themes and the purpose of the project? And, mm. and that's what I've been wanting to do for years. And, and now I'm working with this guy who just wants to do that. It was beautiful. Yeah. Like, obviously, such a success, right? Like, <clears throat> for a title that's relatively abstract in some ways, like compared to like a lot of like current titles, um, or titles that launched at that time, it was a huge success. Do you have like, because obviously you've always worked on different projects, do you have like a particular genre or specific type of game that you enjoy working on the most? Or is it more about the, the creative process of that project? Uh, it's a tricky question. Like as an artist, I think I had preferences. For example, like when I work on Midnight Club, um, mm. 
it was a bit boring because you're you're designing tracks to race on and we were like i remember spending like we had to do license plates for the cars so i spent like two months or something doing all the states license plates which is like pretty boring (laughs) (laughs) versus like on manhunt we would be figuring out you know like i remember like level two or level three you, you you come back to your home and your house burned and we wanted to create a horror feeling we would spend like two weeks watching horror movies then understanding how horror movies work how could we convey some of the, the you know the color palette changes and the sound design and the way you turn to get scared right there was this creative process versus you know license plates and doing tires for right mm-hmm. it's really cool as a player to change your tires and you know to pimp your car but as an artist you're right you're doing i don't know 50 hoods 50 rims 100 whatever it's um does it so not leave much space for creativity? Because it's kind of like you need to create 50 different types of this object compared to Manhunt. It sounds like it's far more about this is what we want the player to feel. This yeah. is what we want to show. Exactly. Yeah. And the car and, and all the cars were licensed. So the cars would be sent to the companies. They would have to be approved by the companies. They'd be like, oh, your spoiler is two millimeters too long and the silhouette <laughs> of the whatever. So it was very... <laughs> It's almost like a factory thing. Um, mm. So I think as an artist, I would prefer projects that were, um, yeah, had these creative challenges. Like at Ubisoft, I work on a fighting game, right? It's all about what you see with the two players fighting. And it was a great challenge because it was like almost like a set design, like a, like a theater play versus a, a third-person game like Manhunt or Max Payne. So these refreshing new challenges as an artist was what was driving me. But on The Witness, design became the biggest driver, right? Suddenly there was this comfort in discarding your art. Art was just there to serve a higher purpose of, of game design, which was already doing it in other projects, but here it was, it was to a, a level that I had never experienced, um, mm-hmm. which made me want to work on games that would challenge, right? That perception of, right? If you want to convey sadness, how do you make all your art go towards sadness and even the way you move or even the way you interact with the ui right every single element how do you make that element go towards a specific feeling or experience which is so abstract right it it looks abstract (laughs) until you break it down into its elements if i want to explore a concept which like with 12 minutes it was right this repetition and accumulated knowledge how can i do that with all these tools we have as game designers and and, and artists and i think that's my addiction now is, is just (laughs) exploring something and taking all these elements to explore it and see what happens because you don't know what's going to happen i think that's what i like in games you like in a film you have a script you do your storyboarding Mm. and you pretty much have a a kind of i mean they say the movie gets done a couple of times right in the script staging when you're shooting it and then you edit it but you have a kind of a direction you're going to go towards while in games until you're actually playing it things drastically change and Mm. you don't know what's happening kind of i think as you're yeah, I mean, yeah, tell us about 12 Minutes and that, uh, I suppose, what led to its creation. So the start of 12 Minutes, if I go to the beginning, we were at Rockstar, we had finished Manhunt 2, <laughs> and we got a green light from New York to say, you can do whatever game you want to do. It's very rare, you know? And so our producer was like, okay, guys, who wants to pitch in ideas? And I had, I had been toying a lot with concept of using time for gameplay, like whether it's a, like I had an idea for it like a soccer game or whatever, a game, imagine a soccer game where you, the game lasts five minutes and, you know, you can go back in time as you play the game. So you can loop over. I mean, 
Lemnin's Gate or something just came out like a few months ago and does that concept exactly or is a shooter where you you know you can loop mm. back so I was playing with these ideas and I had an idea Groundhog Day style and I pitched it and and I was like we have the GTA 4 engine from Scotland which you know in Edinburgh where they're doing the GTA so we could use that engine simulate a full city do a crazy time loop game like no too complicated but it stayed in my head as a as an idea but I always assumed that to, to do your own game you need to right remember at this time there was no unity yet so it was you need mm. some write the game engine which I did, had no idea how to do you need all this <laughs> all this effort that wasn't steam was just starting so you'd have to all the distribution I didn't think that I could do my own game right I would need to mm. have an idea and have a team do that mm. idea and that stayed at Ubisoft I got some friends to work on the free time but it was like any programmer that I would convince to work on this idea I had of a time loop, they would like, one of them was like, oh, I'm writing a game engine. I'm like, great, so let's use your engine. Yeah, let's do that. I'm doing the lighting system. I think in a year I might have something. I'm like, what? <laughs> and we started using Unity, but programmers would be excited about some Unity feature versus mm. working on this game design. So I kind of put this on the side until while at Tecla, first when I would bounce these game design ideas I had, people would actually talk about them. You know, they'd be like, oh, how are we going to solve this? How are you going to do this? Which got me excited. Then seeing like the pipeline on big studios, if you have a design idea as a game designer, the game designers don't program, which is pretty weird. It's like a painter who doesn't draw, but hires someone to draw for him and says mm. it's his painting. So you'd have a designer with idea, he would write a document. The document would go in a meeting, you get a programmer assigned, the programmer writes the code for the idea, the designer plays the idea, you know, then it refines this document based on what it's ridiculous. You, you have this long winded. So the iteration process is very slow. While at Tecla, you know, Jonathan would have an idea. He would go into a room and an hour later, he would show us a playable version of what he said an hour ago and be like, what? And That's some simple. ideas were amazing. Like, I don't know if did you play the witness? No, I didn't like yeah, the to witness be honest. <laughs> So, you know, you, you trace those puzzle, those line puzzles um, mm. on the screen. And then at the end of the game, you have this tower and it's going to be a spoiler, but it's okay. I think where you <laughs> you're tracing on a puzzle, but it's building geometry in real time that matches the puzzle doing bridges that you can walk on. Um, mm. And I remember Jonathan telling us he had this idea of making a physical version of the puzzle appear. And you're like, yeah, that sounds cool. And yeah, this is the one where he went and he came back. This one, I think it was overnight. The next morning, he was like, guys, come see this, right? And, and there he was. He was drawing a puzzle line, and the world was, zoom, was building the shapes. And I was like, yeah, that's the power of, of knowing how to program to yeah. develop your idea. And then there was, like, other designers who, like I said, like, this studio was very informal. Like, other friends of Jonathan and designers would come over, and they would stay maybe a week, and they would work at the studio. So you would see them develop their ideas. Um, and you, you know, lunchtime, you go hang out with them and they're showing you what they're designing and you see it demystified this process of creating games, which made me, damn, I'm going to learn how to program. So I yeah. slowly started to learn how to program while working on The Witness so I could try to do the same thing they were doing. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, That's brilliant. And that was it. It was a very casual, let's see where this goes kind of mm. process. But as this grew, people were like, look, that, that looks pretty solid, man. You should uh, maybe do a game out of that. And then I went to PAX East in 2015, where I, yeah, I was like, okay, let's let's see if it's true. 
So I brought the mm. prototype to an event. Let's see if people play it. And mm. and people played it. They loved it. And then that's when I was like, once the witness is done, I think I could get funding and work on this as a game. Yeah. It comes back to you like, you know, you always wanted to push your boundaries, right? You gave that example of a young lady you worked with in art and speaking to her about doing concept art. And she didn't want to come out of the, her area of expertise, I guess. Um, and talking about like, you know, her doing some concept design for that stage piece. Um, and she wasn't comfortable coming out there, but you always like to push yourself into kind of breaking those boundaries that are within your role. And it is fascinating because you don't often hear, you never really hear of like artists who then go on to like design and develop their own games. And I think that develop part is the key. And it is very interesting that um, often game designers, yeah, don't do, they're art. not programmers. Yeah, yeah. or they yeah, don't Lucas do art. Lucas like, is the only one I know that I, I, you know, Papers, Please, Oberdin. Yeah, yeah, Papers, know. Please is great. <laughs> well, he, does yeah. he does art, music, design. Because having great ideas is fantastic, but often great ideas never see the light of day because you can't present them in the way that people relate to and they understand the value of. So this was also a, a slow learning process. Like after Rockstar, actually something that they do in UK that I really loved was that there's this, that Portugal didn't have at a time and it surprised me. There's this clear effort of personal development. You know, like I remember I was at Rockstar and I wanted to learn ZBrush, which is like a sculpting program for artists. And they bought licenses for ZBrush and they, they got me courses for it. There was this effort of, if you want to learn, we'll be here to let you learn. Um, mm. And even initiatives, like I started life drawing inside the studio. There was another guy who, who loved arcade machines. And like there was this effort to let you grow personally. So when I moved to Ubisoft, I pushed for this. So they took me to Seagraph. Uh, I went to... To mix, I, I wanted to go to conferences and I started to allow me to meet other developers. So when I get eventually to California, we're going to GDC every year. And I started to see like that there's something I, I, I just realized I didn't mention where people who go straight to indies, at least from what I've seen, there's this like AAA has a, a very strong, solid structure on how to make a game. The pipelines are very clear. The you know, the, the, the version control, how you store your data, how you name your files, how you do your builds, almost like it's very streamlined. Um, while indies are a bit all over the place. Um, <laughs> like, for example, I remember on The Witness, there was no map of the island. And that was my first thing. Where's the map of the island? We need names for the areas, right? We need to say the quarry, the na -na -na. and I love this kind of structure. And this structure also applies on how you sell your game or how you promote your game or how you even build it. Um, and a lot of indies that I met as I, I went to the indie world, there were these things of they have a great pitch, but somehow they don't get funding or they managed to make a great game, but they didn't budget for marketing. So no one knows about the game mm. or they forgot they have to do QA and play testing, right? There's these <laughs> gaps of knowledge that I was lucky enough to get from my experience in AAA, where you see the whole process over and over very tightly built so for 12 minutes i had almost a hate towards you know game design documents like i think that doesn't make any sense it's too vague because you once you do a game once the game exists as a playable thing you will learn so much about your idea that a, a game design document cannot cover and the worst thing you can do is look for funding and get funding based on an idea and then when you execute it, you realize you need five more years or 10 more people or a lot mm. more money. So my goal for 12 minutes was I'm only going to get funding once I have such a momentum that 
there's not a real issue about getting funding. So, but about who do I want to fund my project? So what I did was I, by PAX East, I had already gone to, yeah, I did a PAX East. So I had journalists writing about the game, how interesting it was. So I had the media already saying that this game has potential and everyone who I approach, I would just give them a prototype. There was no conversation. I was like, play it. <laughs> mm. I would sit down with them. They would play for 45 minutes. They would play for as long as they wanted, right? You can measure the quality of a game based how long someone disengages, right? So mm. by this point, people would play for 45 to an hour. And they'll be like, so what do you think? And they would be like, yeah, this looks amazing. So the conversations were a lot more about how much money I need and are you going to give me all the creative freedom I want to do this? You know, like, because uh, a lot of publishers are all about, want to make a deal with this platform or whatever, or we want yeah. to not go in this direction because it's, it might hurt some, offend some people, or um, this is too serious, or there was none of that. So, well, yeah, so I ended up signing with Microsoft and they were just like, here's some money, do whatever you want. I've spoken to a couple of devs actually about this, but like Microsoft are just very much, they really don't get in the way of creativity. And I think that's quite a hard thing to do. I think like it's underestimate how hard it is to invest in something and not have a say in that creative process. Because I think naturally as people, you want to have a bit more involvement and yeah. like try and refine something based on your perspective. No, no, you're right. And I think they, they play the long game, right? They, they, they're planting mm. these seeds that they hope in three, four, five years will arrive somewhere, which is amazing there's also like right i had a prototype right but i also would show who the team would be right there was this understanding of the whole pipeline right who's going to make the version for xbox do you have qa do you have marketing in mind but right? i think they they understand mm. they look at all process and see do you know what you're doing besides having a, a working prototype <laughs> yeah. i hope they do that with other games <laughs> yeah. 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 i surely do like do you have a particular takeaway from your experience with 12 minutes like if you would say like summarize what you've taken away from the whole experience thus far what would it be i've got a ton of them but i think the biggest one of all is to be comfortable not knowing what you're doing you know like as as a lead artist i had this mindset of i need to have all the answers and lead this team you know i need to know what we're doing but then i learned that actually a good lead is someone who is very comfortable having no idea what's being done, but getting the right people to find the answers, you know, and, and, and being there to support them. And 12 minutes, and even the witness, right? It was this constant, we have this challenge we want to solve. We have no idea how we're going to do it. Mm. But instead of, ah, of panicking, we just, we're really comfortable being in the uncomfortable zone. And... And I, and I think that's where the boundaries get pushed. I remember early on, we were trying to figure out the art direction, you know, the, the visual style for the witness, um, which I think is pretty unique. Yeah. And there was this constant fear of, oh, we know how to do this, so let's go in this direction versus let's figure out how we want the game to look. And then we try to find out if you can actually pull it off, which I think allowed the game to have a visual style that was, um, that was unique, which, right, it, it literally means that we... We would do a concept piece of how a tree is supposed to look. And then we go to the graphics program and like, how do we pull this off? And they have no idea. So they're writing shaders. We're trying to build geometry. This is what I think makes games uh, stand out is this, is being in this mm -hmm. zone. And 12 minutes, being the director of the thing was this constant, constant failing. It's failing for five years until you, you get at something. Uh, 
but being happy yeah. at it instead of uh that is the biggest lesson like you have no idea like you run off budget people leave the project you're not managing to get some things done things are falling apart but there's progress there's there's a clear progress that i don't think you see it if you're too panicking or or too stressed out i think i learned the the the, the hard like as an artist like i remember very well at, at in manhunt my first job as a 3d artist was to do a a bloody hand texture on the wall right there was there was a guy who was bleeding and he was putting his hands as he was walking out to the textures of the blood on the wall and i spent like i don't know like three four hours you know painting a very detailed hand and then it never got into the game and i was mm -hmm. like oh i see this is not about me doing my work of art i'm just doing assets to convey the message of the game and, and once it stops being personal i think that's and a lot of artists i worked with like mm -hmm. i remember the first artist i worked on 12 minutes or even on the witness, we, we would hire artists. I remember there was an artist we hired who had to work on like on all the Call of Duty games. He was very good at doing things, but very fast things. You know, he he had all these levels of, you know, if you've played Call of Duty, you have this generic rubble. You do rocks that you place around. You do a bunch of stuff to fill the <laughs> level. But on the witness, no, no, no. Like you have to yeah. think five minutes on every single rock that you place. So he would get frustrated because half his work was getting to be redone over and over and over again. And it takes a toll on you creatively if you're attached to your work. Yeah. Um, but if you let it go and you stop seeing yourself as, you know, a, a prima donna that's putting a piece of art in a museum, but you're just doing things to get it someplace. I think it's, it is detachment. You're not failing if the work you've done doesn't go into the game. It's just mm. a iteration process that you need to go through to arrive at the thing that will stay there, right? You need to, to do a lot of work that goes thrown away. Pixar has, mm -hmm. has a great philosophy on this. So like, let's just get all the, all the shit out of the way really fast. You know, over and over and over again. Yeah, I think it must be hard. I think like anything creative, like I, I see it all the time. You, you naturally create a bond with anything you create. Exactly. I think you're programmed to do it. I think mean, it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah because well, because you've created it. And obviously, like, creativity and perspective and ideology, they're all kind of linked, right, when you're making something. And if the rest of the world doesn't perceive what you've made the same <laughs> way you have, like, then all of a sudden you're like, well, that means they're attacking my, my perception. Yeah, my ego is being attacked. I'm not worthy. Mm. Of, yeah, so this was a struggle yeah. I had. Like, with, Yeah, once I was a lead, this was a constant. It was a constant of... Um, people who do beautiful pieces of art, but it yeah. doesn't fit the goal. Like this armor is too big for the character that moves so so lightly or, or, or the narrative we're trying to say doesn't fit the art you did, but we could not arrive at this conclusion if you hadn't done mm -hmm. the work. Yeah, We needed to do this, we needed to see it, so we throw it away. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Embrace the failure, right? Which one you you work with some pretty big actors and actresses, um, you know, like Daisy Ridley, William Dafoe, um, James McAvoy. James McAvoy, yeah. yeah. Um, what was that like? It was great. I mean, they're they're extremely talented. Which there, there was a very technical, challenging aspect to recording the voices for the game, which was like turning these dynamic scripts into something linear for them, being able right. They could not memorize the script, which was, it means they had to understand the characters and be kind of in the moment uh, based on who the characters were, and then convey all these things through the dialogues while still respecting the gameplay and how the dialogues all attach to each other. Mm -hmm. But they were so talented <laughs> that they could do all this. 
and write and figure out the direction for the characters they would yeah it was great they were um, they really helped elevate the game to a level that i didn't think we would be able to and they liked the material yeah. right they were excited by the challenge of of the material and and they were yeah. on the same page like the last thing i wanted was like disney i know they do this in some of their films where they they storyboard the whole thing and then the actors they record by themselves and they do this uh, let's say this line happy really happy extremely happy and then the editing right is gluing all these things together mm. but i wanted the actors to all act with each other you know they would always bounce off each other and they wanted to do the same thing so we were pretty aligned in terms of the the challenge of of building the characters which was was super fun mm. um, it's fa it's fascinating to see actors and actresses have to like like you said like do multiple lines of dialogue for the same instance depending on what the players done um with that because it's completely like abstract from your typical script in a film where it's like this linear journey from a to b yeah, yeah i think it's brilliant there's even more like i think in a film and willem mentioned this a couple of times which was interesting like in a film your body you know the the position of the camera the lighting you're doing a lot of other things you, you have to take into account as an actor a lot of more variables while in the sound stage it's all in your voice. Like the only thing I'm going to get out of your performance is the voice. Yeah, there's this, for example, I remember with Willem character, right? You want to see a journey in the characters, even though it's just 12 minutes. And right, and I had an idea of how Willem characters should be. But once he's, he impersonates the character, right? He, he could see that some things would, would flow better if his tonality was different. Do you play, I hope, do you play 12 minutes? You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like there has to be a very clear distinction between them the cop as he arrives aggressive the cop as he's handcuffed and he's afraid mm. of dying the, the the father thing at the end right they had there were these beats of personality that had to be very distinct mm. in a subtle way and they had to come all through the voice and figuring these out was kind of their task as actors mm. and they were very good at it they were even answering questions that i didn't know existed do you think this will continue to grow? Because this is a fantastic example of film and game combining creatively. And recently we had on uh, Abubakar Salim. He's one of the leads in Ridley Scott's Raised by Wolves. He plays father. He's now still doing that role. And he's actually created his own game studio with EA. And he's working on his own because he's always wanted to make games. And he's got he's trying to focus on things differently narratively. And again, 12 Minutes is a fantastic example of, you know, we've seen it more and more in games, but this is almost like an indie project where actors and actresses have got involved and you don't really ever see that, right? No, like it's, 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 it's very, very unique. And it's, um, do you think this could lead to more, like, how do you think this will evolve, this like film, game, collaboration? First, I think games, they're making a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. As a medium. And I think that's making people no longer look at them as entertainment. That's one of them. The other one is, right, there's this like Annapurna Interactive, right, who I, I, I partner with. They have a feed on each side. Our meetings would be at Annapurna Studios in LA where you don't see any differentiation between games and films. The whole thing is, is all. It's creative people trying to do projects. And I think projects have, like technology with Unity and, 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 and Real and all these engines, we've reached a level where, like, like iPhones, like everyone can be a photographer now. Where, mm. <laughs> which allows a lot of creative projects made by few people to have a level of, mm. of quality that, yeah, like indie movies in a way, like A24 doing their things. I, 
I think you can do productions of a certain quality that, um, yeah, that actors look at them and it's not, you know, just a dude in his basement doing Pac-Man and he wants my voice versus he's actually trying to do something that mm. will hopefully break some boundaries or get somewhere and they think they might be able to participate in that and bring something to it. More and more, yeah. yeah. Like in 12 minutes, we could do mocap. We had this talented sound. The composer, I was amazed at like the libraries of sound you have now where you can digitally recreate, you know, orchestra instruments. And mm. but there's no orchestra. It's just a dude in his home with a MIDI player and a lot of knowledge about classical music building this. I think we, we're at this level where, yeah, things are more professional in a way, I think. And, and people want to be part of it and mm. see where it goes. It's no longer seen yeah. fast food. I think it's interesting how games and I suppose being a geek in general um, <laughs> has <laughs> has lost that label. Yeah. And now, I mean, like, obviously it's, it's bigger than film and music combined in terms of the amount of money that it earns and the size of game is obviously ridiculously big. But I think game will become the term games is going to become broader and broader. Yeah, it will be interactive entertainment, I think. Yeah, mm. because it's true. There's a big. There's a big stigma towards games. Like my wife doesn't mm. play games. My wife is like, games are a waste of time. It's, <laughs> yes, I'm like, my girlfriend's exactly the same. Like, she calls it wizards. You <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't say that about a book. Like who would say that books are a waste of time? Yeah. Right? But some books are a waste of time. But yeah. throwing away the whole medium. And I think there's mm. this, yeah, there's this huge connotation of games. And I think it's because of the word, because games themselves, I think, are a form of entertainment foremost. But I mm. think the interactive medium, you know, where there's this dialogue between you and whatever you're experiencing is much richer than just, you know, Scrabble or, or Bejeweled or, or Pac-Man mm. or Tetris. I mean, we've seen it over and over now. I think it no longer has to prove itself to get a bigger audience or try and aim to get a bigger audience. I think it's going to be one of those that people are naturally going to adopt it as, yeah. as it evolves. And I love that. I, I think 12 Minutes is a very good example of like just basically the success and the growth and the interest in games i think i we were able to get this cast in the game because we i think we've reached that momentum where they won't dismiss the game and i remember like as a triple a i remember very well we like rockstar and, and ubisoft that you would get a big actor paying big bucks so his voice is there so you can put the name on the label without mm. actually being like will they actually be able to provide something that enriches the game but mm. i think now that's what happens right i i generally believe that the actors we got like that's that's how we did it we we showed them the material i spoke with them telling him my goals and they were like this looks cool i want to be part of this which i think mm. five years ago would be much much harder unless you you give them big yeah. bags of money and you're a big publisher <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is, but I think that's because naturally they all have like relatives and friends who will be playing games, yes, and right. that that natural association is like actually, yeah, this is like a cool thing to do now because like I might have a niece or a nephew who's played like often it's like something like Fortnite, but like yeah, you know, it's like an introduction, like you know, Fortnite and games like Fortnite. People can be quite derogative about them when you're working within the industry, but they're a gateway to the industry for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, and phone games, mobile games, it's everywhere. Yeah. Like, you cannot yeah. ignore that games are a daily presence. You know, with your career, like it really does show that it is possible to create a game from like an artistic background. You come into the industry, obviously you did design at uni, your inception into the industry and 
for a couple of roles thereafter is very much about art. You don't see often like arts, artists going on to create games, even if they want to. What do you think the current blockers to that are? And like, would you have any advice to people listening if you're working in art or animation, how you can actually then go into game design? I think the biggest blocker is programming. Programming, learning to program is pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I say hard, it's very relative because like when I learned 3D, I would have to buy a book. I remember buying a big book of Studio Max and I installed a program and you're like, I remember like, I remember I pressed F, which I think locks the, the pivot. And then for five days, I'm trying to find out why the pivot is locked. I cannot go Google <laughs> pivot is locked. There's no, no one in the internet talks about this. The book doesn't talk about this. Um, yeah. And nowadays for programming, you have a million courses, a million tutorials. You, mm. So I think hard is not that hard. It's just, um, but I think it's a learning how to program. Learning how to program is learning a new language. Literally, it's learning how to speak again, you know? And I think you need to be very passionate <laughs> To put the yeah. effort of, of of learning how to speak again from scratch. But I think mm -hmm. you need to know that to do a game because game design is programming. It's they're they're completely connected to each other. You you're you're writing code to make things happen and it has to be there's all this understanding that needs to happen to make a game. And I think we artists have a, a more visual mindset of doing things and suddenly you're you're writing lines of code and and, and that was a lot of struggles. A lot of I, I don't know how I went through a lot of it. And how functions work, how variables work with each other and all the errors you get, they're so obscure, you know, just it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> oh, the biggest struggle is, is yeah. It doesn't sound very enticing. Um, but it is, it's super fun. Like it's the moment you have something moving on the screen, like the moment you can mm. call a friend and you press the space bar and the thing changes color. The thing with programming is like that you, you feel you're the king of the world. You know, mm. and five minutes later, you know nothing. You suck at it. <laughs> you never get anywhere. Like in five minutes, for example, there was a like when the cop arrests you, he throws you on the floor. But the space is very small, so the cop needs to know what are the available spaces to drop the body of the character. And so suddenly, this thing that's very simple was a huge problem. How, how do I calculate the available space to drop a body on the floor? And then if you already drop one character on the floor, he has to take into account the spaces that are left. So I would spend months on these. I'm like, dude, I don't want to think about this. I want to think about the story. But no, for the next three, four months, you're thinking how to drop a body on the floor without hitting the furniture. Or, you know, programming is this all the time, which is also another lesson when you ask about lessons. I think that's a big one where I did all the programming for the game, like or 90%. I didn't do the ports. I didn't do... Um, some small things, but I was doing the whole code and, and I would delegate a lot more. Now I know how to delegate because I understand how code works and how you can section things off. This I could have hired someone to be like, you're going to solve dropping the character on the floor. But when I worked, the, the dropping was very connected to the enemy. It was all entangled as a spaghetti. That's a big lesson, right? You, <laughs> you should, like a big lesson is once you've done your prototype, you should rewrite the whole code from scratch so you don't read the mistakes of the prototype, which I didn't do. It's a steep curve, a painful steep curve that you need to to go through. But once you've gone through, it's beautiful. Yeah. It feels like you can just, like you said earlier, like, you know, with like a designer, it's like having an artist who can't draw, but they can paint. It's like once you learn programming, you can then connect your art 
with your programming, with your game design, it kind of completes that ecosystem. Kind of, because like as an artist, like I remember I was doing a monster creature years ago and you're doing the scales, right? You're doing, you're doing the scales or even a face. You're doing, you, you're modeling the pores or whatever. And you put a nice song or you put a podcast and you get into the zone and you're modeling. There's no getting into the zone in programming. You have to be 100% super focused writing the code. Uh, and that aspect of it, there's an art side of things that you just flow when you're drawing and mm-hmm. you're painting that you just, if you're coloring something, you know, you're, if you're painting wood, you're just doing the wood and it might be two hours or if you're tracing a drawing. In programming, mm-hmm. you never really, I never experienced that. Like, imagine I finished solving the, the guy dropping the character on the floor. Now I'm going to mm-hmm. have to solve the feet not sliding when you go from walking to turning, you know, and, and there's no... Jeez. Yeah, there's no stopping there. I think there's a big... It's like you're developing new muscles. Like programming, you have to put all the problem in your head Mm. to finally start thinking about it. And just uploading the problem you're trying to solve, all the variables, takes like 40 minutes. Mm. And then if someone opens the door, hey, are you hungry? (gasps) All gone, you know? It's all gone. You haven't even started thinking about the solution. Yeah. And that is that is hard, man. That that it hasn't stopped being hard for me. It, it sounds very rewarding, but to get to that point, it sounds like you have to graft and you have to, like you said, passion. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But there is like yeah. I have to say for people who listen to this and get demotivated, there is a moment like <laughs> when 12 minutes started, every character was like a box, you know, like the husband <sighs> was I mean it's the colors I ended up with the dialogues. The husband was was like white, the cop was blue, the wife was pink. And right, they went from boxes to these modeled characters, suddenly they were animating. And there was a moment that anyone playing the game, they would put so much meaning into what is being rendered on the screen that they cared for the characters, right? And I'm like, there's no characters. This is just 3D models being rendered in a screen, but suddenly you're connecting with this. And this transition, being the creator of this transition and seeing people... For example, a lot of people who play the game, they never stab the wife because they care about mm. it, you know? And you're like, you're caring about something that does not exist, you know? The moment these things start to, to be there, that you start seeing that they're alive and, and you believe they exist, it's very magical. Games have this, like animation, you see this too, you know? People drawing on paper, suddenly you see these frames passing and it's alive, you know? But no, it yeah. just runs on paper, I think. And in games, there's this level of interactiveness that it's it's magical. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. Um, what's next for you? I have an idea that I think it's really cool. <laughs> uh, it's just on paper still. I just started to prototype like a week or two ago. This could be a, a total other podcast, but um, there was a, a big personal development thing that happened to me during this game was learning how to be in the present moment realizing that we're always in our thoughts, right? And our thoughts are Mm -hmm. all about evaluating what happened in our past. And we use our past to predict the future, right? And the more we're stuck in our past, the more we have this this guilt and and regrets. And the more we think about our future, there's all this anxiety. And and, but only thing that exists is the present moment, right? There's nothing else. There's literally Mm -hmm. nothing else but the now. (laughs) And this realization, you know, like especially 12 minutes in the last year where it was like, when is it out? When are you done? I'm like, I have to enjoy the journey, what we were talking about early. Um, so there's this process of what I want to do next in terms of games, you know, like 
How am I going to get the funding, building the team? I want to build something that is sustainable for everyone that I'm going to be working with. But there's also, and I think the pandemic did a lot of this to a lot of people. There's this process of of appreciating life, you know, and, and seeing mm-hmm. how I can do that process. And the game did well financially, so I have some room to figure those things out. I'm not rushed into, I need to start doing a game right now to have food on the table so I can figure these things out. So it's a bit of both. It's this personal journey, like how many hours should I work? A lot of indie developers at GDC, we all meet up and we talk about these things. Like in 12 minutes, for example, I would have a list of tasks I need to do. But Mm. was I productive? How do I measure productiveness when I'm the only one measuring myself, you know? And there's this constant feeling of, I'm not fast enough. I'm not producing enough. There's all these measures we we put on ourselves that are not good for your health, you know, and for your Mm. enjoyment of, of the present moment. So I'm trying to question all these and balance all these, especially with the family and everything. And instead of going straight into a project and suddenly, you know, there's 10 people working and we're in a schedule and we're trying to produce and it all gets lost. So, uh, so there's a lot of introspection going on at the moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have that's great. And there's also something like, this is cool because the first interview I'm doing since all these things have come to light of like, I have one idea that I think it's amazing narratively and it's an evolution. Like 12 minutes, I think was successful in merging storytelling and gameplay all the time, right? You don't have a cutscene mm. of exposition and then you're playing the game. It's all merged. It's all happening. Mm. It's all nonstop. And I think I like that a lot. A lot of games still have this level structure where you get your objectives and you go do your level and you collect these things mm. and then you go to the 12 minutes. There's none of that. And I like that a lot. I think it's, it makes it more interactive, more, it's more intense. And I, I have an mm. idea that builds on that, that I really want to do. But on the other hand, I have another idea that has nothing to do with that, that I really like, but I don't know if it will be financially viable because I think I'm the only one who likes it, <laughs> but I'm like, um, is there room to build those things, uh, to, to create mm. something that like, I don't know if you played Exo one, what are mm. the games? There's few games like this. Did you play Shadow of the Colossus? Um, yeah, love that. Shadow Crosses is amazing. Yeah, like because there's such an emotional tie to the things you're killing. Exactly. Right? Like, but even even yeah. even that it's so in me that like when you would be walking towards the Colossus and raising the sword to get the light, there was this there's this thing that you feel about it, and you're you're just mm. riding the horse towards the location. And I think more and more games are exploring that that thing yeah. that is is nothing but it's everything, and I want to explore that. But it's very hard to put that into gameplay, right? It's a very distilled thing. But to explore it, you cannot be constrained. You cannot be thinking about budgets and time and schedules and mm. and are players going to be engaged? You don't know. And I want to mm. see, can I explore that and still, you know, have money to to for food and rent? <laughs> it goes full circle, you know, logistics versus creativity. Because uh, there's so many things we could touch on about what you just said. The thing with Shadow of the Colossus, what makes it so brilliant is it's so desolate. And the fact that it's only you, I can't remember the horse's name, and the Colossi, that's it. But you're killing them to, I think it's to save the woman who's sick, the princess who's sick, if I remember Yeah, correctly. yeah, but it's all very vague. Um, it's all very... But that's what's so brilliant. So you have to use your imagination. You have to fill in the gaps. And like the Dark Souls games do this well, where the story is so abstract. That like you're filling in the gaps, but... It's for me, well, for me, I don't know, obviously, to speak from my perspective, like playing games, but it's emotion, right? Like, I, I need to have emotional triggers. And, like, you know, when you hold the 
sort up and you, you get the light and it guides you. I think you feel you're filled with purpose, but a bit of guilt almost because you're on to kill the next one and everything is emotionally resonant. It yeah, resonates yeah, with you. Yeah, and you, and you want to kill it because it's fun, you know? Yeah. And you climb yeah, them and they're is... majestic. But I think the process to arrive at that, it's mm. a very long, iterative. There's a lot of things you're going to throw away over. Like, I don't know if you read the making of mm. Shadow of the Colossus. There's a long road to walk that mm. you want it to be as pleasurable as possible so you enjoy doing it. and. I think mm. I've been thinking a lot about how to achieve that, uh, how to mm. how to do that, how to do that process and still enjoy life. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because sustainability comes from creating something for in games for a predetermined demographic where you know they're going to pay for it. <laughs> <Exactly>. However, <laughs> creativity <laughs> comes from taking a risk because there is no predetermined audience who's actually going to be like. That's why you know big AAA publishers stick with the same IP like FIFA because they know they're going to sell a similar number of copies every year. And that's that sustainability. FIFA, I see it more as um, it's a different kind of game. Like I, what you're saying, I would say more like Assassin's Creed, where you have collectibles mm. and the XP and then na, 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 where they, they, they have this formula and you mm. build on the formula. Chant to a colleague this morning about exactly this point. We're talking about MMOs, actually. You look at World of Warcraft, like 15 years old. And yet every MMO since has copied that archetype as this is how you should make MMOs. But in fact, everyone's 15 years older who used to play it, right? Like they have less time. And it's like, why should that be how oh, you should yeah. interact? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that drives me nuts, actually. Like I remember like at Ubisoft, we would help students at school. They were doing their projects. And, mm. and especially with students, you see this. They love games because there's some games they played that really touch them. So they start a game and they're like, okay, this is character. He goes left to right and he jumps. I'm like, well, why does he go left to right? Why are there mm. platforms, right? And yeah, a lot of game design, you still see like great ideas. Like the concept is great, but then you make a platformer. Mm. You make whatever it is that you were comfortable with instead That's, of yeah. questioning those decisions. But they're so passionate about what they play that they don't, yeah, like what you said about the MMO. And I think there's a, that is like, I've yeah. seen a lot of games like, like God of War, the last God, I got a PlayStation to play. Red Redemption loved it. Spider Man loved it. Then I was gonna play God of War. I never played a God of War game because I I never had a PlayStation mm. before. And you have this amazing opening. Did you play the God of War? The the last. Yeah, it's probably my favorite like game of last year. Ah, so I'm not gonna <laughs> like what I'm gonna say. <laughs> but look, my point of view comes yeah. from the Shadow of the Colossus point of view. So I was yeah that amazing opening cinematic. Like I was. Mm. emotional i was like i'm feeling it then the level starts zoom 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 guys spawn orbs come mm. out like what <laughs> energy bars i'm like what wait i was yeah i was in this story mm. why do i have energy bars why do i have levels why i mean the mechanics mm. are great the, the hammer throwing coming back it was like a thor thing it was really solid but there's was this dissonance between this story you're telling in your cutscenes mm. and me Killing, I don't know how many people you kill in that game, right? You, you're slurring yeah, machine that's over. A, that's a lot of people, man. Like, it's a bit, um... There's a disconnect. <laughs> it's a Super Mario mm. with a very deep story, you know? Yeah. See, for me, it's the story. Like, so that's, I played all the originals. It's one of my, like, favorite franchise. And it, you're completely right, though. It, the gameplay is the same objective-based gameplay that we see in probably 90% of games. But for me, it's the narrative. That's why I loved it. But then... On the flip side of that, I'd say the other game that I absolutely loved was Hades. Like I thought Hades was I absolutely gotta play that game. I don't know if you play. 
Yeah. Oh man, it's so good. And but this, the whole point of Hades is to have the same gameplay loop. But because it's obviously it's a roguelike, because that's what they do, you accept it for what it is because it's been created with that in mind. Oh, I talk about this forever. I do worry about innovation and budget and innovation and stability, should I say, because I feel like at the moment in the games industry, they contradict one another. There's a fear of innovating in case you don't make money. And so the question is then who innovates? And often it's the indies who have to now carry that. It's almost impossible to innovate at sustainable scale. I think like in fashion, it's the same. You have the fashion designers who make those clothes that no one will wear, but (laughs) a distilled version of that will be in H&M in a year, right? Mm. They're doing these clothes that have this, yeah, this innovation in the design, and then someone filters them so you can wear it in the street. And I think it's the same. Like the indies come up with amazing mechanic, and then three mm. years later or four, you have a AAA that borrows that mechanic into this mm. bigger scale thing because they they're like this was super fun. Everyone loved it. We're definitely gonna mm. use it. Yeah. I think it's with being in the present. Like I completely agree with that, like analyzing. Do you know what the problem is with self-analyzing? Because I do like um, CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like this. And I've done like mindfulness and it's um, naturally like everybody accepts rationale if it's negative. Unfortunately, like we've been programmed almost to do that, like in the way that we shouldn't be like that. So, you know, if you're overanalyzing, people often overanalyze until they get to a negative conclusion and then they accept that and move on. And that shouldn't be the way at all. But you accept a negative conclusion because it's easier to live with than a positive one. I think that's why often people blame themselves for situations which aren't actually their fault because they've overanalyzed it to the point where they're like, I need to accept responsibility to move on, even if it's not theirs. That's just my Oh, like, yeah. I mean, look, we, we, could, we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> when we go into that, like, I think the concept of fault is already an issue. Right, we we live in a society where we blame others. There's this comfort. Oh, this happened. Your fault. Done. Solved. Mm. Now it boils down to the idea of blaming others for how we feel. Right. Instead of you being responsible for your emotions, we've learned to judge and blame others for a situation. You know, like for example, I always give this example. Imagine you have a meeting and someone is late for the meeting, and you get all pissed. You know, because you're you're hungry. You know, you want to eat. You're tired, and this guy comes late. So you blame him for how you feel. Oh, you come late, always, always the same thing. But it could happen that mm. you're not ready for the meeting and the guy being late is amazing, right? You have time to prepare for the meeting and now you're happy that he's late, right? And if you mm. look at the situation, right? The guy being late was just a stimulus, but the way you interpret the situation, first there's this, you, you felt something and you decided to blame the other for how you felt instead of actually realizing that you're hungry. And it's the hunger that makes you not want to be in the meat. But maybe you could go eat and come back. Or it stops you from being able to really understand the situation the moment you start blaming. Yeah, like, but the thing is your brain does this. Your brain starts to process to understand mm. why am I feeling uncomfortable? It's you because you're late for the meeting. <laughs> Instead of being, no, I have a need for food because I'm hungry. Mm. So what I want is food. So I could tell the other guy, look, you're a bit late. Would you be willing with your late 10 more minutes so I get a sandwich? No, mm. like you're always late, no, 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 yeah. I've got actually one last question and then I will let you go. Yeah, yeah. How would you summarize your career in one sentence? <laughs> what would it be? What would it say? In one sentence? Oh man, that's a super hard question. 
refreshing. I think it's a little word. It's, it's very refreshing. Every mm -hmm. single project is new. Like I went from a, a stealth violent shooter to a racing game to a, a theater game. Everything is new. It's, it's very refreshing. Like I never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like right now, I have no idea. <laughs> like we want to move to another country. No idea where we're going to move when I want to open a studio where I'm going to work. I love that. I'm so lost. It's very <laughs> refreshing. Yeah. Brilliant. No, that's fantastic. Louis, you've obviously been, it's, it's been such a pleasure. Same here. Um, yeah, it's been fantastic. I can't wait to see what's mm -hmm. next. I do have to say a little disclaimer, like obviously all the, the views that you've heard here today are those of Louis and my own. Um, they do not represent our employers in any Definitely shape. Definitely not. <laughs> um, and if you'd like to reach out to us, you can at gamedevshow at ptw.com. Louis, Thank you so much. Hopefully see your next project soon or maybe in five years, but I cannot, <laughs> I cannot wait. And thank, thank you. you Thanks for taking the time to come on the thank show. You for the opportunity it was great. Brilliant. Take care. Game over.